0: We'll have to work fast today. I don't know how many of you feel, does three hours seem like a long time or a short time? I'm short. I'm wondering, short. I don't think I've ever done a three-hour practice period, but, uh, but any amount of practice is a good thing. So I'm happy to be with all of you today. Wondering how many of you are new to, to insight meditation or mindfulness, you self-declared? How about how many with some experience? Okay, great. Well, we'll start from the beginning. As most of you know, as most of you know, I'm looking for my gla- Oh There we go. Forget it. <laughs> as most of you know, mindfulness is now the, the buzzword. It's one of the most frequently seen words on Google, if you Google mindfulness, there are some huge amount of millions of hits people um, can, can make on, uh, on mindfulness, and it's amazing because it, the, the idea of mindfulness, or it's something that is actually embedded in a, a liberation system founded by the, the Buddha 2,600 years ago. It's not, there's nothing new age about it. It's an old age thing. And it's, it's from the Pali word sati. Sati means bear attention mixed with a word called sampajanya. Sati sampajanya is bear attention with clear comprehension. So essentially mindfulness is knowing what you're doing when you're doing it. It's actually having clear, real-time comprehension of what's happening. And it is the, as I said, it's the buzzword of our days. It's used in every, it's used in schools, it's used in corporations, it's used everywhere now. But most often it has been uh, just this quality of clear comprehension, bare attention, has been teased out of this very deep, wisdom tradition, and applied to efficiency, and competency, and just being more present in one's daily life, and being more present in one's actions. And it has amazing applications, and it's wonderful that it has found its way into every element of our life. However, you're here at Spirit Rock, so I would like to at least contextualize it today to what it was originally meant for. And of course it was meant to do all those things it does in our world, but it was also meant to be applied toward a a deep understanding of our nature. The understanding is that if we truly understood through our own direct experience, if we were able to track very carefully, our own moment-to-moment experience at whatever is happening in our thoughts, in our speech, in our body, our moods, all of our different senses, that if we were to able to, to develop any kind of continuity of noticing, that through our own efforts, through our own direct experience, we could, if applied in this way, could come to what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. A release of the tight fist of grasping that we're usually bound up in. The release of the tight, tight um, fist of of incessant wanting. Incessant contentiousness with our life, the way it is. Because our life, as most of you are well trained in, as I am, our life is generally... Uh, We're basically taught from the moment we're born to want what we don't have and not want what we do have. So consequently, if I want what I don't have, my sense of well-being will be associated with something that's not actually happening right now. It will be associated with what's next. And we live in a society that is that is obsessed with what's next our mind is fixated on what we call the future i call it the imagined future because the future doesn't exist it only exists as thoughts in the present moment right anybody seen a future (laughs) so our mind is focused on the future and because it doesn't really exist and the What even will be our future present moments have not arrived yet. There really is only you and I, all of us sitting together right now. That is the totality of our life. That is what each of our life has come to, this moment. This is where we live. This is not an idea. This is a direct experience. But our minds are trained to be obsessed with how things turn out. And because our minds are obsessed with... Does this seem true to you? Mm -hmm. Okay. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Because our minds tend to be fixated, focused on what's yet to be, and because it has not yet occurred, there's always a little bit of uncertainty about whether things will turn out the way we want them to. Any of you ever feel that? In the form of worry, anxiety, hope, Expectation, desire, all of that. And those states of mind when, that, are often, that often arise in our consciousness associated with the imagined future have, as a felt, have a felt sense associated with them of agitation, of some sense of, I'm not settled, and I need something to happen at some other time in order for me to say, ah, in order for me to relax because my my happiness has become tethered to uh, something that hasn't occurred yet. And as long as that goes unrecognized, and I'm just literally living out the way that I'm thinking about things, what gets missed, what gets overlooked, is the only place that we live, is what I call the, the living present, or the vital present that's so different from past and future, which are just mental, really. They don't really exist. So unfortunately, while we're busy, as I think it was John Lennon said, while we're busy making other plans, life is happening. And we tend to be missing it. We tend to miss it. And then when we wake up to where we are, initially, we're a little disoriented. We don't actually know how to inhabit the present moment. Don't know how to live with everything that, that is so alive in the present moment. And what's in the present moment is so alive. Our sights, if you just tune in to what you're seeing for a moment, our sounds, our felt sense, our, our physical sensations, our moods are alive in the present moment. Our breath, our field of sensations—it is so alive and so juicy that at first we we just don't know what to do with that much life, because we've been used to diminishing our our vital energy by being lost. What um, what sometimes—and you'll hear if you ever do that—if you do any this for any length of time. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll tell a story. There's a, a famous monk from Thailand named Ajahn Dasa, And he's part of a stream of monastics that have, that have been the teacher to many teachers who are connected to spirit rock. And and Ajahn Dasa lived into his 90s, and he... So he met many, many, many thousands and thousands of people. And he was a venerated monk in Thailand. And toward the end of his life, he was asked to comment about the world, about people, about about us. And just asked a very casual question. Say something about the world that you find here. And he reduced his response to three words. And what were those three words? How did he describe us? Anybody want to take a guess? Lost in thought. Lost in thought. That was his entire commentary. And while we're lost in thought, we're missing the vividness of our life. And mostly what we're lost (laughs) in thought about is a a sincere and innocent search for relief, for happiness. That's what binds all of us together is the search for happiness. And the, the um, desire to be free of the things that that torment our minds that, that are so hard to bear in our lives. And that's what we're always looking for, no matter what we do. But most of what we Choose as our source of relief, unfortunately, the medicine that we take increases our dis-ease. And what it obscures is the fact that that relief that we are searching for, the ah, the cessation of uh, so much mental stress, is only, can only be found right where you're sitting. As one Tibetan teacher said, he said, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. He says, there's nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to want. Everything is found right here. As Alan Watts says, the purpose of meditation, the purpose of life, is always arrived at in the present moment. So if we're searching for relief elsewhere, we are literally hiding, we're obscuring what's sometimes called an open secret, that the happiness and peace that we are looking for, the ease that we're looking for, is the natural And peace of our own minds when we're not busy looking for it elsewhere. So notice what happens even before we start our formal practice. Notice what happens in your mind, in your experience here, after your last search for happiness passes away, you know, your last thought passed away, and before the next one comes. So if you let go of the ideas of the past, let go of the ideas of the future, and you're just here for a moment, not doing anything at all, if you're really just here, and you're not looking ahead and you're not looking back, what's your experience right now? Even in the midst of what we know and when we remember and when we think about it, a pretty wild and upsetting world, But if you suspend at least the idea of the world for a moment, this is not to deny everything that's happening, what's just happened in Paris, etc. But if you suspend the thoughts about it for a moment, and you don't look back and you don't look ahead, what's your experience? Just being here. Anybody willing to say? A feeling of calmness. Mm -hmm. A feeling of calmness. Anything else? Happiness. Happiness. Okay. Okay. So you can hear just by these first few responses that that there's something here for us already, always already, but we're so busy looking elsewhere for that for that feeling that we miss it, and uh, and that's a shame. So what we what we do with our practice of mindfulness, which is real time. Attention and clear comprehension is we, as Thich Nhat Hanh, a great Vietnamese teacher, as he calls it, he he calls it reclaiming your heritage. He says, you who are the richest person on earth. How many of you feel like that? (laughs) You who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. (laughs) Stop being the destitute child. Come home reclaim your heritage so our practice of mindful attention is it does basically has two functions it helps us return to that deep inner nature that natural peace and ease that's the natural peace and ease of our own mind as you just pointed to just now after your last thought had stopped and before the next one came this is half of our practice is getting used to the the living present again, and seeing the difference between between your direct and immediate experience and the virtual one that's playing through your mind. Any of you have a virtual one playing through your mind? Isn't it amazing that that virtual version of you doesn't even really exist? It's an imaginary you. But you're here, so unique, so precious, so awe-inspiring, so unexplainable, the fact that we're even here. But that immediate direct experience of yourself is is, uh, often taken as not enough, or ignored, and what then plays through our mind is the the thought about myself. I'm not enough. Uh, Something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. I can't be happy now. Everybody else is happy, we compare, we judge, all that. And it basically obscures the simple reality of the present moment, where you are, if you don't consult your memory, you're fine. <laughs> Any evidence to the contrary on real, in real time? What's the evidence for you're not fine if you don't look back and you don't look ahead? So this is half of our practice. The other half of our practice, as the Buddha recommended, is to see, is to learn the the various experiences that we have moment to moment, to learn how to accommodate them. So that means to learn to accommodate the whole world of sensation, because that's what you find here. You find sensation, you find breath, you find moods, you find thoughts and images, you find everything right here. Learn how to recognize them. Learn how to navigate your feelings. Now we are, as you all know, I think you're all probably experts at thinking about your feelings, aren't you? But you're not so good at feeling them. Just feeling them like weather like energy moving, just like the wonderful little rainstorm early this morning. We have the same internal weather. It rolls through and we experience it as a felt sense. But often what we're caught in is a narrative about that weather. And we often become, in our thoughts about our feelings, disembodied. Don't feel things very well. So. The half of our practice is learning how to navigate feeling, being, in a body. And what is understood to be deeply healing is to uh, feel our body, to feel our breath, and to be aware. To put our mind in our body, and our body in our mind. Bringing these two together, attention to our body. So it's that same mindfulness that's being used in corporations, but it's being applied to awakening. It's being applied to a deep awakening, a deep healing. And what you'll notice, whether, you know, I don't want to talk about it too long, but you'll notice is when your attention comes together with your body and you stay there a little while, you will experience uh, a calm, a calmness that happens, a smoothness, an easing of tension, uh, uh, letting go of stresses. You'll experience a deeper sense of focus, a deeper sense of clarity. Mind gets very bright. And that leads to the second part of of the second part, which is as we become more familiar with the flow of our experience, our sensations, our moods, our thoughts, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, everything, Because this attention with clear comprehension has embedded in it, you know, what we're aware of in a continuous way, What what our consciousness has embedded in it is intelligence, is wisdom. We start to understand how things work. And we start to see for ourselves that. There are some common laws that are operating in the way our minds and bodies work. We start to see some common characteristics to every single experience that we have in our life. And the more we see those common characteristics, I bet bet you're wondering, what does he mean by common characteristics? What is true about every experience that we have? When you see that. give you a little sneak preview right now. Well, maybe somebody else will give me a sneak preview. What is one of the common characteristics of every experience that you ever have in your life? It passes. It passes. We've got lots of veterans here. Why? Exactly. But it does, It's not rocket science, but we tend to fall into a very common misperception. We try to find something that is lasting in things that change. We try to find that great experience. We try to buy that thing that we think will make us happy. We try to have that person that will stay forever. Even that is subject to change. And because we tend to fall into the misperception that taking that which is impermanent to be permanent, we, um, we then hold on tight to things. We don't, we don't live in harmony with our life. And we can intellectually adopt a view, yeah, everything in life changes. Anything. Anyone here who was born, I don't know if you've read Wiley's Dictionary. Wiley's Dictionary, definition of birth, the leading cause of death. <laughs> Nothing can remind us more of impermanence than this definition. We can know this intellectually, but do we live that way? Do we live with a light touch? Do we live with a deep appreciation of these precious moments that we have? That we have not lost what we will lose right now. We're actually here. And to take advantage of the preciousness of our life, and. But then at the same time as the... I don't know if you know the great poet William Blake. He says he... I'll, we can do it he or she, but it's all of us. I'll do it in the way he wrote it. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So can we... Learn how to be in harmony with change. To enjoy what's here and learn how to let go. Because if you don't let go, what happens? As one of my teachers says, you get rope burn. (laughs) So the function of mindfulness is to develop wisdom to see the common characteristics of life. And I won't get into the other common characteristics, but they're all... They're all based on this fact of impermanence and change. But it's also a feature of mindfulness, this attention with clear comprehension. It is a feature of mindfulness that when mindfulness is is present, when we're actually paying attention to something, that holding on cannot coexist with that. Fighting reality cannot coexist with a moment of paying attention. In that moment of paying attention, there are three things that are absent. What are those three things? What's the first one? What's absent in a moment of mindfulness? You may not appreciate this, but in a moment of mindfulness, we're not wanting what we don't have. We're actually present. We're open to and welcoming life as it's occurring in a moment of mindfulness. Even if the last moment before that was, I want what I don't have. Mm -hmm. That moment of noticing that, of shifting, and I hope this makes sense, shifting from living out of that, I want this, I need it, I have to have it, to noticing, oh, that's wanting. That's waiting, that's hoping. The moment of that shift of noticing and clearly comprehending that wanting mind, that, that is a moment of freedom. That's a moment of what we call non-greed. It's also a moment of non-hatred or non-contentiousness. And it's also a moment of non-delusion, which means non-delusion is you're oblivious, you don't see what's going on. Of, non, of You actually see with clarity, oh, this is an experience of wanting. This is an experience of hating. This is an experience of fear or anxiety. Or, oh, this is an experience of judging or comparing. So that moment of mindfulness is a moment where our mind is not caught up in what the Buddha, I'm contextualizing this, what the Buddha called the three poisons, the three things that keep us bound up in this wheel of endlessly looking for that future that never arrives endlessly looking for our happiness elsewhere. The three poisons are greed in the mind, wanting what I don't have, hatred in the mind, not wanting what I do have, and delusion, being oblivious to both of those. And there's another level of delusion, which means taking everything very personally. But we won't get into that right now. So maybe you can hear from all of this that Mindfulness, it can be very liberating, can be very enlightening, uh, illuminating. So it's both getting used to the life, the only place that we experience life. And it's also seeing all of the ways that our mind works. And, the, and in the, that same vein, seeing all the ways that we, our mind tends to run from the present. And the beauty of it, of the mindfulness practice, is it puts even those habits that ruin our lives, it puts them to good use and, and helps us use them to bring us back to this vital present. So even that your mind that connect, that's never satisfied, once you become aware of it, oh, that just becomes another experience to be known in the present moment. Okay, So let's practice. And for those rookies, I'd like to um, invite you to, I'll do a little bit more of a explaining the, um oh that's Carla, oh so great to see you Carla. Thanks for dropping in. So the last, the last thing I'll say before we actually practice is the in a very famous teaching of the Buddha called the Sati, the Patana Sutra, uh, which is another way of saying the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. It's within that teaching that the Buddha suggested that we practice in this way. And in that teaching, he said there are basically four domains that we want to practice. First one is, and perhaps the most important of all of the so-called foundations of mindfulness, the one that is the most essential to, to, for a person to experience a heart's release, to experience an easing of, of suffering, an ending of our confusion the first one is mindfulness directed to the body second one is mindfulness of what are called feeling tones called vedana the third one is mindfulness of mind the state of the mind and fourth one is mindfulness of these laws of nature uh, mindfulness it's called mindfulness of the dharma so it's more the mindfulness of of those things that we begin to understand by paying attention to our body and mind. And just to give you a little sneak preview of that, the things we understand that get in the way of happiness and the qualities of mind that enhance our ability to be happy. And then some other laws of nature as they become clear to us. That's called the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So we've got mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of the Dharma. We will focus primarily on mindfulness of the body because that is the doorway. So the first thing we will do is we will find a posture that is both upright yet relaxed. And as you can see, I'm rocking from side to side. And I find it very helpful to rock from side to side or front to back until I find a center point where I can then rest most effortlessly and easily in a posture that can remain relatively still. And if you are sitting on a chair, it's helpful, ideally, if your back is free. If it, if you can't sit a little forward on the chair, at least be somewhat upright, and you want your body to be in contact with the floor in three places. For those in a chair, it would be the feet and then the rear, where it touches the cushion. On the floor, it would be the knees. Ultimately, helpful. it would be helpful if your knees were in contact. You may need to support your knees with pillow. If, if not today, the next time you practice, knees supported. So it's like a little tripod want to let your pelvis drop a little bit. And it may feel as though it's a slight arch in your spine, but you want it to be relaxed. You don't, want it, you don't want any strain. You also don't want to just be aware in front of you. You also want to be aware of what in yoga they call your back body. So you want to have that sense of a, of a 360 degree sensitivity. And once you feel this upright, relaxed posture, let your eyes close softly. And you'll notice that even a few moments of your eyes close softly, you'll you'll feel a gentle turning inward, a gentle stilling of your mind, stilling of your body. And you may sense your body from the inside in a different way than you usually think of your body. You mostly feel it as sensations. And just to give it a little bit more focus, it can be helpful to start with the feeling of your rear end contacting the cushion or chair. And letting your attention move beyond the contact, the idea of rear end and chair, and just feel that sensation that's felt pressure, heaviness, hardness, temperature, whatever is felt as your rear end touches the cushion chair. And then shifting the attention once you feel those sensations feel shifting the attention to your hands touching whatever they're touching your thighs or your touching each other whichever is comfortable for you and then the touch of your lips and once again the touch of your eyes and relax the eyes And then as you navigate these different points of sensation, you may again sense the felt experience of your whole body sitting. The points of sensation that gives the, give a sense of the whole body. You'll feel it as vibration or aliveness, pulsing. And you'll feel a gentle stillness. And though even though there is a general sense of stillness, you may start to sense, without even trying, the gentle movements that your body makes when it breathes. You'll sense the chest or your belly gently rise and fall. You may feel the gentle movement of the air past your upper lip nostrils, however it is that you feel your body breathing. might be helpful to know that your body breathes all by itself, even when you're not paying attention to it. So don't worry about your breath stopping. We're simply paying attention right now to a process that happens day in and day out, all by itself. And we're now, as a support for anchoring our attention in our body, we're simply going to connect with the feeling of our body breathing. It's called mindfulness of breathing. And We will connect with the Sensations of the in-breath through the duration of the in-breath. Connect with the sensations of the out-breath through the duration of the out-breath. And we're just going to notice and feel our breathing without trying to alter it in any way. Just noticing and feeling that it's happening. So as you bring attention and clear comprehension to your breathing, sometimes the breath will alter a little bit just because you're attending to it. But as much as possible, let it breathe itself. And notice how some breaths will be short, some will be long, some choppy, some smooth, some deep, some shallow. Your job is simply to know and feel how it is in this moment. Knowing that you're breathing in, knowing that you're breathing out. That's all. It's not a breathing exercise, it's a knowing exercise. Many find it helpful to accompany the experience of the breath with a soft mental label that approximates what's happening, something like in and out, or rising and falling. And if you're using this what's called a tool of mental labeling, should just be 5% of the experience, like a transparent whisper. 95% of your sensitivity on the feeling of the breath. feeling our body breathing breath by breath. Let yourself settle in to this breath, to this moment. Let the past be in the past. Let the future remain unborn. Just settle into the living present. That's all there is. with a soft mind, but alert, with a gentle attention, yet precise. Intimately feeling the texture of this one half-breath or this one breath, just this breath, just this moment. As I mentioned earlier, we are all very well trained at being lost in thought. So it is inevitable that from time to time you will realize that you have drifted into fantasy. When you realize this, this is actually a sign that you've awakened to the living present. So appreciate those moments that you wake up to where you are without any judgment about having drifted off. It's just a condition. And Once you wake up to where you are, in behalf of staying anchored to the living present, we connect again with our body, which is always here. We connect with our breath. So it's natural for the mind to wander Appreciate each moment that you notice that. And then settle your mind again, your attention again into your body. Bring your body back into your attention, breath by breath. Just this breath. If you find that you're straining or struggling or starting to fall into a state of dullness, feel free to mindfully, with full attention, refresh yourself. Begin again. Every moment is a new beginning. can always begin again. Mind in your body, the body in your mind. five more minutes. So, good news or bad news? Please. Um, so, if I understand you correctly, and I drafted what I'm saying during the draft. <laughs> that's called rehearsing yeah. or drafting. <laughs> If there's if the, if if whatever your mind is doing, your thinking mind is doing. If that is clearly comprehended, that you know your mind is thinking about this or thinking about that, and you generally know the process that's occurring, whether it's planning, whether it's judging or comparing or analyzing or or drafting or rehearsing, that. Every single moment of noticing that that's actually happening, clearly comprehending that it's happening, that's mindfulness. And and, uh, when I am not doing that... When your mind is not drafting or rehearsing or thinking about anything of the past or the future... I, and I'm not distracted by the zillion sensations of my body, I actually, and I don't know if this is the dullness you were referring to, I find that I fall asleep. And I know that I'm awakened when I notice that I was falling asleep, but I, I don't understand yes. what, what's going on. So when she says that when she's not distracted by the million things that may be happening, she drifts off into uh, sleep, but then, then is called to attention when you wake up. Right. Okay. First of all, I'd just like to play with the language that you used a little bit. Anything that's happening other than um, being completely lost and oblivious, anything that can be noticed is not considered a distraction. Everything that can be noticed in real time, clearly comprehended, is considered, an uh, I call it equal opportunity mindfulness. It's an object of mindfulness. So all those many thousands of things, if you're noticing them, that usually means if you're actually noticing them in real time, that means you're mindful. So when, when there is nothing particular of those many thousands of things calling your attention, and your mind may be quiet for a little bit, and there's not the obvious and usual stimulation that's usually waking us up in some way, we, t- we can very easily drift off into uh, variations of sleep. Sometimes they're called hypnagogic states, in between sleep and wakefulness, a little dreamy. Or we literally can fall out, you know, fall asleep. And when we are, when our mind falls asleep, there's absolutely nothing you can do until that moment that you recognize it and you wake up. And at that moment that you wake up, when you not most, when you actually wake up literally from falling asleep, and that you. Recognize that you have been asleep, you know, that there's mindfulness of it as well. At that moment, your intelligence says, ideally, in the course of your practice, uh, I was very peaceful and calm, but I wasn't very aware. And because there, was, there wasn't a lot of awareness, there wasn't a lot of energy, but there was a lot of peace and calm, I, I drifted off. And so you're, you actually begin to see for yourself, and this may not seem interesting to you at this point, but in order for there to be any kind of um, strength of mindfulness, there has to be a balance of energy and tranquility. When, and the first thing that happens when we practice, our eyes are closed, <laughs> not a lot of stimulation our brain says, hmm, this is a lot like nighttime. <laughs> Time to go to sleep. But even, even beyond what our conditioning is, what happens in a room that's quiet and our body is still, the first thing that we tend to experience, unless we're just terrified of silence, which is very possible, the first thing we experience is tranquility. But it's usually not matched with vitality not matched with enough energy. Whenever you have tranquility, peace, calm, without energy, the way we talk about it here at Spirit Rock is it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. You start nodding, start nodding, you start going to sleep. So over the course of our practice, as we train our our mindfulness, Remember, what we're doing is not only training our our mindfulness and clear comprehension, but we're also training ourselves to be living more in the vital present. And so we tend to, our energy system, our vital energy, our sense of aliveness tends to increase over time. As one of my teachers, a teacher named Sri Nisargadatta says, reality is what makes the present so vital. So different from past and future, which are merely mental. So when we dwell a lot in the past and the future, we just our energy system, our vital energy system, gets diminished. We start feeling, we don't feel as alive. So the more we the more we live in that vital present, the more our our energy system, I don't know how to put it in other words, it it begins to come alive again. And We recover when our mind is, when we're more immediate, we're not spending so much time in past and future. Our mind and body come together, there's a healing, there's a calming, there's a relaxing, and it it tends to, we recover. And most of us come to our meditation practice because we've lived so much in virtual time, virtual reality, we tend to be a little bit diminished not to mention just taking on all the stresses of the day all the sights the sounds the smells the tastes everything we have to deal with the people the situations we're by and large exhausted and more so than we even know and we tend to live on mental speed and excessive stimulation you know that's uh, I usually read on most retreats this editorialist named Amy Cross Rosenthal where is in she had an editorial back in the 1990s, ancient history, called Sweet Nothing, where it starts by saying, um, uh, how are you doing? Or, you know, how, how are you doing? And the answer is, I'm busy. How was your week? Busy. How was your life? Good, busy. You name the question, busy is the answer. She says, I know we're terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think most, more often than not, this is the most... Knee-jerk response the simplest knee-jerk response. He says have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? I've got ten caves to draw on. can I meet you by the fire next week? And her contention is it's the advent of coffee bars <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and coffee's luscious byproduct which is productivity. Ah the joy of doing of crossing off. And so we're living like gerbils. High not just on caffeine, but caffeine's byproduct of productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. And then she goes on to say, as kids, our stock answer to every question, you know, what'd you do at school today? What's new? Nothing. She said, I'm starting to think that like like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. And we need to reintroduce it in our grown-up vernacular. So this busy and our identification with being so busy, with being, instead of human beings, human doings, we have exhausted ourselves. And we've, we've, we've stopped knowing how to really inhabit our lives and be nourished by the, by the living present. As you, Maybe you even sense it already in the moments when you're not looking back and you're not looking ahead, like we did earlier. There's a, we start to wake up a little bit. Do you sense what I'm talking about or no? And we've been missing this. And consequently, our vital energy system has gotten a bit diminished. And so the first thing that happens in our practice, tranquility, but not enough energy, do this. Now, for, for people who may be a little less comfortable about being this quiet, though, You'll, there's often a tendency to experience not so much tranquility, and when you have, and maybe a lot of uh, nervous energy. So, when you have a lot of energy and low tranquility, you have the opposite of dullness, which is restlessness and agitation. And that's these often, in, as we get used to practicing, our mind will fluctuate between restlessness and sleepiness. So that's why I ask, because is it good news or bad news? <laughs> Often, at the, as one of my teachers said, insight at the beginning is usually bad news. So we realize we're tired or our body hurts. Any of you feel your body hurt? Yeah. And we're not so used to We love ourselves, so we, don't, we usually want to feel better. And so our method, though, has been to check out. It's to distract ourselves, to get lost in thought. And instead, in our practice, when we feel our body hurt, The next instruction that I offer to you will be when you feel your body have unpleasant sensations, you feel them. Oh, this is really unpleasant. Okay, let's see if I can accommodate this. It shouldn't be such a novel idea since half of our life is unpleasant. But somehow we think that if it's unpleasant, it's wrong. But if you're born, not only is the definition of birth leading cause of death, the definition of birth is the leading cause of both pleasant and unpleasant. It comes with the territory. It comes with being in a body. And if we are not able to accommodate the unpleasant experiences that we have, our life ends up being an endless running from them, trying to get away from them. And that endless running creates tension and that endless running and the tension that it creates exhausts us. And then we have more what we call sloth and torpor, dullness. So the more we can learn to accommodate the living present, both the pleasant elements of it, but also learn to accommodate the unpleasant. Not building a religion around unpleasant, but knowing, oh, this is unpleasant. The unpleasant things that we open to, believe it or not, this may be a little bit of a forward look at where it leads, but the pleasant that we can accommodate leads to compassion. It leads us to mercy and kindness, caring, and a wise response If our body needs some kind of care, we may realize, if we're opening to it, oh, I have not been sleeping enough, or I haven't been eating well, or I haven't been drinking enough, or I have not been, I've not stretched enough. Or we can, our wisdom can then operate on it. But if we're busy running from our unpleasant, hard to have a wise response, hard to have a loving response, even though the tendency to check out is, is the one that we were taught. And it, is, it does come out of love for ourselves. All of our endless desire to distract ourselves, it's trying to bring relief. It just doesn't. It just makes us worse. This makes us more unhappy. So the whole teachings are just helping us wake up to the way things are and learn how to wisely and lovingly respond to our life instead of continually taking, as I said earlier, taking, Medicine for ourselves that causes more disease. So, so the first thing is uh, tranquility, or both, um, both dullness and restlessness. Anybody else notice anything in that first sitting? Any other comments about what you notice besides sleepiness? Anybody notice your mind wander here and there? Oh, please. This particular practice is best done in silence. Because what you're attempting to do is use your own mind and body as your, um, as your, mer- as your manure, as your fertilizer, as your um, gateway to understanding and awakening. So it's not just about calming your body and mind. It's not just about having a nice experience. It's about learning. And there are many practices in this world that are all about tranquility and calm and having a nice experience and, and concentration, having exotic things. And then there are there are few that that the purpose is insight and wisdom. And it's understood that it's the insight and wisdom side of our practice that truly frees us from our confusion. So ideally, you want to at least be able to you're free to play music anytime you want. And you're free to meditate to music. But if you want to understand what, my, what the function of mindfulness meditation is, you just use your mind and body. And it's a beautiful thing to, to be silent because you will, and let your room be silent because it will start to resonate with a deep inner silence that we've so long ago lost sight of. That actually your nature, your natural state is silent. You know, before you can, before everything, we're quiet. And, and if we can begin to connect with that natural quietness in us, you'll see that your body calms down and your mind calms down. Everything, a byproduct of just being quiet. And once in a while, feel free to play music. Please. What, what techniques or suggestions do you have for people when their thoughts start to drift to the future and they're striving for the quiet and staying in the presence? Okay, before? what happens when your mind wanders, in other words? When your mind wanders, is, if mindfulness shows up to notice that, great. Sometimes mindfulness doesn't show up to notice that you wandered, so you may wander a long time. While you're lost in thought, nothing you can do. If mindfulness shows up at that moment that you realize that your mind has wandered, you go, yes, I'm awake again. What do we typically do when we realize that we've been drifting for the last 10 minutes? We say, oh, you're such a bad meditator. <laughs> you should have been present, and now you and, and instead you were lost in thought. But the more you practice, the more you'll see that being lost in thought is just a habit. It's not, any, it's not anybody's fault. So while you're lost, nothing you can do, but the moment that you wake up to where you are, you go, Yes, I'm present again. And I'm not going to look back and judge the fact that I wandered because it happened all by itself. Not my fault. But I'm going to, instead, I'm going to orient myself to the present again. I'm going to sense what it's like to be present again. And then, as I, as the, per the instructions that I just gave, instead of getting mad or tightening up or bearing down or anything, I appreciate where I am. I relax everything. And on behalf of staying present, training my attention to be present again, I just put my mind back in my body. I just anchor my attention again in the breath or in just the sitting posture. And I want to do that so gently, just like, and you've probably heard this before, just like if I was trying to train a puppy to pee on the paper. I just gently, I don't rip the puppy to the paper, I gently put the puppy back on the paper and. And putting the puppy back on the paper meditatively means just having my attention in the same location as my body, feeling my posture, connecting with my breathing. Does that answer your question or no? That's yeah. basically what we've just been doing. So the point is, is you will find, as I said during the practice, you will find that what your mind is most trained to do is to be lost in thought. And it may be shocking at first to see how much your mind... Wanders and how little mindfulness there is that rises to notice that. But the more you practice, the more that mindfulness starts showing up. My mindfulness would show up, and then I would go back to my breath, and then I would start to fall asleep. Well, that's again because we're not used to being present and quiet, and just what I was talking about mm-hmm. before. So just be really patient with that, really gentle with that, and if you if you do in a chronic way. Fall asleep, there may be ways that you can there may be ways that you can um, have a little bit more. You can take a more precise posture, you could practice with your eyes slightly open, you can even momentarily pull on your ears a little bit. but uh, the second part of the other formal practice that I'll be leading in a few minutes will be walking meditation. The walking meditation will also help pick up your energy a little bit but you had your hand up, please. I did. Uh, if you've done this for some time, and at times you can sit and meditate, and it's helpful. Yes. And then you stop doing it for whatever reason. How do you train yourself? So, are you talking about yourself right now, or, I, or theoretically? I'm myself. So you have. So tell me a little bit about you, and so then I've maybe. I've meditated over the years. Yes. In particular, at times of crisis. Okay. Uh, and at other times, when there is no crisis, I've done less of it. Uh, but I found that when I do it, it's a joyful experience, and I feel sometimes good with it. Yes. But then I forget to do it, or I don't do it enough. Mm-hmm. How do you, uh, as someone who doesn't do it professionally, but someone who does it as part of their life, how do you do? How do you maintain? How do you maintain some kind of daily practice or regular practice if you're not suffering? <laughs> <laughs> All the time. All the time. All the time. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. The few things I think of. One, of course, you, you don't want to wait until your life is in a state of misery and then have meditation associated with rescue mode. You want, to be, you want it associated with, as, um, as Alan Watts put it, digging the present grooving with the eternal now <laughs> you want it to be you want it to be something where you're not you don't do as a duty or self punishment or because you're miserable you want to do it because you're interested in being alive and awake you're not you're you you're, you don't want to be on because you don't want to be on automatic pilot so it's helpful if it comes from a place of a, of a sincere yearning to be awake that's ideal but because we are also trained to get to have habit, to have habit strength for distractedness, uh, it takes a, a it takes a certain kind of commitment to at least start our our day with some kind of gesture of mindfulness, of presence. So that's great if you can just start even for a few minutes, and because we're never ever sorry that you practice i don't ever i don't know anyone that's ever been sorry that they practice but yet as you describe we tend to just it just drifts out of our life so just some small measure that reminds you of what your values are what your interest is and even a reflection on what you know what the intention of your life is is it really just about about having a lot of stuff and experiences and then dying don't you want to live your life? Don't you want to really love it and not be constantly postponing your happiness till some imagined future? OK, you hear that? Maybe you get inspired to practice a little bit. So reflecting a little bit in the morning. But I found no ma- they're the most sincere yogis, meditators, even ones who've done long practice periods, tend to fall into the same pattern. So you're not alone. And what I've found is those people that keep the fire burning are those people who practice with other people. Nobody does this alone, completely. <laughs> and I don't know how many of you have been exposed to the teachings, but the, the Buddha, the teachings are always, any kind of practice period like this is usually begun with a, a ritual called um, Taking Refuge. And there are traditional ways of viewing this, but I want, I'd like to describe it in the most immediate sense of what it means. And it's, this ritual is called Taking Refuge, and it's going to the Buddha for refuge, going to the Dharma for refuge, going to the Sangha for refuge. What is the Buddha? So traditionally, it may be the statue it reminds you of that this human twenty five hundred years ago, just like you with the same habits, same bad habits <laughs> the same bad habits, felt some kind of dissatisfaction with the status quo with all the usual distractions, and he decided that he would um he would. Practice until he found something reliable, found a sense of freedom. So he practiced for six years very intensely and then he woke up and then spent the last 45 years of his life just sharing everything that he learned and in real time and describing his, the state of his mind. So we can draw inspiration from a human being who can wake up. But that's not what Buddha means in real time. Buddha means I go to the Buddha for refuge means I go to that in me that is wake, is awake. I go to the wakefulness that lives in me, which is another way of saying I go to this capacity in me to notice what's happening in real time. So everyone here right now, stop being aware. Stop being awake right now. What happens? You'll see that even prior to your identity, you're awake. It's, it's your natural state. Does this make sense, this language? You are naturally aware and awake. This is what you want to remind yourself of every day. This is what you want to nourish, what you want to exploit, is the fact that you are aware as your natural state. And you want to you stay close to this. Because you can see, as people described earlier, when you are close to this wakefulness, everything that's happening is very workable, and you find find yourself a lot more present, a lot more peaceful, a lot happier. Our happiness usually is born of that imagined version of ourselves that we're lost in, that imagined past or future. Whenever we wake up to where we are, where's the problem on present evidence? Where is the whole drama of our life in this present moment when we're sitting here? No Not here. What's here is you are awake, and we're all together. And it's kind of mysterious and wonderful all at the same time. So I go to the Buddha for refuge, I go to this wakefulness. That's the first one. The second is I go to the Dharma. Dharma, traditionally, is I go to the, what the Buddha learned, the teachings, the the laws of nature i study them i use them as a as a test to see is that really true in my in my life and i use these teachings and i put them to good use but dharma means nature it means truth so in the most immediate sense it's whatever's happening in real time whether i like it or not that's it's the truth what are you experiencing right now maybe you have to go to the bathroom waiting for me to finished talking, tired, excited, present, that's the dharma. Whatever it is that's happening in any moment, at any one of the different senses, that's the dharma. That's, I, want, I want to commit my life, at least for this time, or as much as I can, I want to go to the Buddha, I want to go to the dharma. And the third one, this is not a, just a throwaway, third one is I go to the sangha for refuge. I go to the company of those who remind me to remember the Buddha and the Dharma. And again, to Buddha and Dharma are not Buddhist. Buddha just means awake, and Dharma just means whatever you're experiencing. And Sangha is just community. It means community associated with truth with, for the purpose of awakening to the way things are. So you don't have to be a Buddhist to... to do this ritual. I go to the Buddha, I go to the Dharma. So I say this because Sangha is not, it, it, it's keeping good company is really, as the Buddha was asked by his cousin Ananda, he says, isn't it true that half of the awakening life is keeping good company? The Buddha said, no, it's not true. It's the whole of the awakening life. So take advantage of, of living in what we call Dharma Mecca, Here, there are so many opportunities to practice with other people but we are we also live in the most individualistic egoistic culture in the history of the world and it's because of our individualistic tendencies that we're so disembodied so out of touch with our feelings because we're just off in that view of reality that we're somehow apart from the flow of life. We're the wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. And we've forgot that we're we need each other. We're all connected to everything. So part of our so it's just good to remember the the community is. Doesn't mean you have to join. It means just keep good company. People that remind you to practice. <laughs> that's all. Please. Every day is new, but one thing I find every every few days I find myself bargaining with myself. Like I know I, I want to sit, get up, and sit, and I go, well, I could do this lying in bed. It's so nice and toasty. Is yeah. yeah. everybody go so you that? notice I, yourself bargaining? Saying, I just like yeah. bargaining. Like oh, I'll yeah. just listen to a relaxation tape. Yes, or, you know, I don't want to. I just you know I I just sort of. So it, I just don't know, you know, I, that's my, you know, the resistance in me, I think. Yeah, so part of, as, uh, as this day goes on, even though we don't have a lot of time together, and I'll just give you a little sneak preview of what you will learn how to navigate. All the instructions in meditation are a description of what you'll notice anyway. It's not about you need to do this, you need to do that. And one of the things that you will inevitably notice is what you described as resistance, You'll notice the mind that wants what you don't have and the mind that doesn't want what, what you do have or, or resists or feels afraid. And we just use that. We notice that. And it's great that you can talk about it, but it's to be able to notice that in real time and study that feeling of resistance. Go, wow, isn't that interesting? Just completely unbidden, without even asking, this thought came to my mind, you know, it's time to sit, ah... Uh, Rather listen to a tape. Oh, isn't that interesting? The bargaining, mind bargaining, or the, or the resistance. I mean, I feel that. I notice what that's like. Meanwhile, I'm actually training mindful attention by noticing that. And if I notice something, once mindful attention lights on something, anything, you'll see that whatever that experience is, what did we say was the common characteristic of all experience? Impermanence that feeling of resistance will come and it will go. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be the next moment, you're still in bed, the resistance has been noticed, it's arisen and it's faded away, now there's this open space there. You're still aware and you're practicing. And then you might have the thought, oh, let me sit up a little straighter. Let me feel the, the sense of dignity of somebody who's a meditator, you know, just that it wants to be aware. And then before you know it, you're meditating. So you don't have to, resistance doesn't have to get in your way. It's just another thing to notice. Mm -hmm. Please, last one, and then we'll do some walking practice. Please. It's not on. (laughs) Uh, Dreaming about and scheduling and planning the future. No, you can't schedule or plan anymore. (laughs) Just kidding. No, it's such a great question. So, what does that mean? If I'm living in the present, does that mean I can't plan or fantasize or remember? Everything, everything happens in the present moment, including planning. And the only difference between a meditator and a non-meditator is a, a non-meditator or somebody who's not mindful will tend to be lost in their plans, will lose contact with the immediate present, not realize that all planning is happening right here. So, so the meditator will notice, yeah, I'm here, and I'm planning. And then that's just another moment of mindfulness, of planning. So it's all. if we don't plan, we don't, our life doesn't tend to work out in a way that, that uh, but if you're present, you're likely not only to be able to be mindful of your planning, but you will be also in touch with the quality of, your, of the quality of your mind and body as you plan. If we're oblivious, we may be planning with this kind of anxiety that says, this plan has to make me happy. Any of you ever have that? <laughs> kind of desperation. Now that makes us make really confused plans. But if on the other hand I notice the planning mind and I notice that I'm I'm anxious, my attention will shift to the anxiety for a moment. I'll attend to it. I'll feel it. I'll start to calm down a little bit. And then I can go about planning without the expectation that it has to make me happy. I'm already happy. I don't have to postpone being happy. I found it right where I'm sitting. But it all happens right here, planning, remembering drafting rehearsing all that if everything happens here that's there is only the present i mean i'm not making this up <laughs> <laughs> please the value of being able to to go into this sort of space or this meditation the value of going into the value of doing this practice when you're practicing and you're having this awareness yes Boy, that would be the worst thing, I've got to do at it. it's like... Well, I want to, but I mean, the difference yeah. is spending a, a, a one sort of longer time versus at various periods of the day on multiple times, I mean, is there a... Uh, is there an a, a advantage to long, uh, uh, yeah. one period, long to, a long period, or many short ones? Mm-hmm. If I was going to err on either side, I would go short periods many times. However, it is because we are so habituated to busyness and, and uh, excessive um, restlessness and, and, and movement that learning how slowly, how to sustain an experience of stillness, to, uh, to have our mind really settle into our body where the, our nervous system can actually experience the healing and releasing effect of that. Somewhere in the span of your life, it's helpful to sustain it a little bit, to have longer periods. But in the meantime, you don't want to, just like trickle-down economics, just to relegate your practice to that one long period and then expect it to trickle down. Just like trickle-down economics doesn't work, neither does trickle-down meditation. You want to ultimately be mindful, in addition to your formal practice, you want to be mindful from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed. And you'll find the more moments of mindful attention to whatever you're doing, the happier you'll be. The less, the more interesting the present moment will become wherever you are, and the less you'll want to be somewhere else. Can you imagine that? What were you laughing about? Uh, no, I was, so I've only been meditating for know, a month and a half. Um, and then Been I meditating say, for a month and a half, just so. <laughs> and I would say in the first two weeks, there were periods where I would come out and, I, honestly, I felt like I was in the matrix, or like I just smoked pot, or I had done something. You thought like you were on a like, drug opened, trip. I uh-huh. opened up awareness, and I was hearing, feeling things and all the things. Um, and throughout the course of the day, I would find myself, wow, how do I get back to that? All right, so my day would go on, so it's, it's almost as if I have the exact opposite experience, where it's like, where am I going to fit this time so I can get back to this state, and that yes. state is becoming harder and harder yeah, to get Yeah, and, and because your eye is on the future, it's not on the present. So what you want to be able to do is notice that your mind is wanting to get back to something, and that state of mind is a state of craving, and craving causes suffering, it causes tension, it causes exhaustion so so that's not it's not your fault it's just a habit so you just want to notice that and I'm I love that you're noticing it but you also want to you want to notice it and use it as a reminder that you're already sitting in front of your own fireplace that you're already you there's no place to get back to so that this is a this may be a longer conversation we really I do want you to practice but when you first begin to have that experience of immediacy, aliveness, it will seem, you'll get, it's like beginner's luck, you'll just have this great feeling. And the way the Buddha described that, he described it as a springboard to awakening, to have an experience that are so enlivening, so wonderful. But he also called them the corruptions of insight, because the tendency of the mind is to carry them around like corpses and then be burdened by them, and then spend all our time trying to get back somewhere. And in that process, missing the ever-present wakefulness and clarity that's right here. So so the exotic experiences, even though they inspire us at first, they're way overrated. <laughs> and we simply want to keep being available to what's, what new is presenting itself. And you'll see some are exciting and some are not. And the point of our practice is to be equally interested and balanced and happy, whether it's exciting or whether it's not. We've become so dependent on things being exciting, <laughs> illuminating. and uh, But the true freedom is finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. Like, wow, you and I talking right now. What's more amazing than that? <laughs> My matrix. <laughs> yeah. The, the matrix is really a split second away. But you've been obscuring that by looking for some past experience. It's right here. Anyway, I think I think you get the point. So now we are going to take our our Buddha, our wakefulness, which remain no matter what posture you're in, the Buddha still you still it follows you around no matter what you're doing. You're still awake. But instead of our formal sitting practice, we will do a formal walking practice. So it'll look something like this. You'll mindfully stand up, not unmindfully like I just did. You'll mindfully stand up, and you can see that my upper body retains the same meditative presence, still aware, but now I'm aware of the standing posture. So in, some, in one way, awareness, attention, has not changed at all. That's the Buddha. With me so far? So don't just associate meditation with the sitting on your cushion. So when you're walking down the street during the day, you can you have a portable Buddha just walking. Follows you nearer than your breath. OK? So that don't, you, you're never more than a split second away from that. It's just, it's just a matter of attention. OK, but the formal walking, we, instead of attending to our breath in our body as our initial anchor, as our initial support, which is you know, what we started with, was mindfulness of breathing. This is what the Buddha suggested. But instead of that with walking, we, we let the breath go, and we use the the movement of our legs and our steps as our anchor. So still being the Buddha, noticing the Dharma, but I'm noticing the steps. And I'm slowing down enough so that I can actually feel myself walk, but not too slow that I'm losing my balance or too slow that I'm getting tense. Slowing down enough to feel what's going on, but in a a speed that I can stay relaxed, I can stay in balance, and stay interested in that feeling. And I want to, because I'm trying to train my attention to be present, I walk back and forth. And that reminds me I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) The whole point is to arrive in the step I'm taking. So I get to the end of my pathway and I felt, as much as I could, I felt the, the feeling of my steps, the contact of my feet, movement of my legs through space. And I get to the end of my pathway and I want to equally, mindfully, turn around. So I felt that whole process too. So you can see, it doesn't matter what you're aware of, as long as you're aware. But in this case, we're directing our attention to the feeling of lifting and the placing of our feet. That feeling of swinging my leg. And then when I get to the end, I turn around again. So you can pick a path about the, about 10, or, 10 to 30 steps long and just walk to and fro. And in the same way as in the sitting, when you realize that you've drifted off into fantasy, and often when we walk, we're usually thinking about where we're going. And our body starts to lean. So when you wake up to the fact that your mind has jumped forward or you're fantasizing about something, it's like, oh, you notice it, stop for a moment, and then on behalf of staying anchored to the present again, you put your attention back on your steps and continue to walk. If you feel, who's the person who had resistance? If you start to feel some resistance, oh, many people. <laughs> if you feel some resistance, you go, oh God, this looks crazy, it looks like the... Land of the living dead, you know, I've, I'm so <laughs> self conscious and embarrassed. If you start having some resistance, you'll stop and you just feel that. Oh, this is what resistance feels like. Give it a little attention. You'll see it comes, it goes, and then you're free to walk again. So, to and fro, mindful of your steps. I, won't, I don't want to give you too much to notice right now. I often accompany my steps with a little soft mental label, just like with the breathing. Of uh, stepping, stepping, or left, right, or lifting, placing, something that helps keep my attention on the actual experience. And uh, we'll walk for about 15, 20 minutes. There'll be a gong that alerts you to come back. You're on your own. Please keep silent during that time. Give yourself entirely, support each other, solitude, and just do a little walking practice, and we'll come back. We'll sit, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, outside, or in the back of this room. It's fine. Also, in the meantime, if anyone wants to come up and speak with me about your practice that didn't feel comfortable to say something in the group, you know, happy to check in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.